Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the year 1763, the Empire of Great Britain scored the greatest victory in its long and storied history. With the signing of the Peace of Paris, the Great Seven Years' War came to a close, and the Empire of France was left in ruins. With the end of the Great War for Empire, King George nearly tripled the size of his domain and laid claim to nearly all of the North American continent. But what changes would such a drastic transformation entail? And was the British Empire prepared to confront them? On this episode, we discuss the year 1763 and the beginning of the American Revolutionary Era. It's our Season 3 premiere. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we'll be discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and events that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave birth to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. As a very brief introduction to this season, I'd like to talk a little bit about why I chose this subject, why I think it's still very relevant, and why a podcast series like this, discussing this period in the way that we will, is going to be absolutely essential to understanding the era in its fullest complexity. One of the things that really drew me personally to this time period was the fact that no matter where you are, no matter what you're discussing, no matter what the political issue of the day may be, this time period always seems to be drugged back into the light. In fact, even more than that, it's even used as a pseudo-justification for many of the positions we take on the left and the right in American politics today. We talk about individuals like the quote-unquote founding fathers as though they were placed on earth by God to create this new republic in the world. We talk about them as though they are like the pantheon of gods, infallible. When in reality, and you look back, what you see are that these men, uh, very much like folks in power today, are just politicians, guided by very human ambitions, money, wealth, power, legacy, uh, any number of issues uh, that drive many politicians today. But it's amazing to me the disconnect that we have uh, between the actual political elements of the time period, what really made the age tick, so to speak, and the way we think about them. I mean, I really feel, and this has probably been the case for about 40 years now, maybe 30 years around the bicentennial, I really feel that we have mythologized the people who were involved in this time period to such a great degree that we're beginning as a society to lose the real uh, depth of cultural understanding required to really understand this time period. 
Remember, today's politics are tomorrow's history. That's as true in 1776 as it is in 2014. But I think that's what we want to focus on in this season. The real boots-on-the-ground, political issues of the day. Remember, the people guiding this are guiding it for reasons that, uh, as human beings, we all still feel today. The same emotions, the same issues. Um, this is a very real time period with very real concerns. And if we gloss over it, if we simplify it, if we make it seem easy, we lose the real depth of understanding that really make this uh, a highly impressive time period. I will admit that some of the things we'll talk about this season may challenge your view of this age. I'm not going to change the events that happen. That's certainly not the case. But we're going to look at them from a new perspective, one that as Americans we don't take enough. The challenge is this. We are not going to talk about this time period as good versus evil. Uh, we're not going to talk about this time period as A versus B or red versus blue or black versus white. You have to understand that as historians, there are no sharp edges. Everything is blurred. There is no black and white. It's all gray. And as historians, we live in that gray area. That's where we do all of our work. So we're going to view this as any good imperial historian should be. Myself being one, it's a trait that I've learned and developed and hopefully can share with you over time. Let's not make this us versus them. Let's make the American Revolution what it was. It was a rebellion in an empire in the 18th century. That's it. If we begin to take sides, if we begin to bias our own understanding, we're going to miss out on a lot. So that's the way we're going to talk about the American Revolutionary Period. And what you'll see is that it sheds a whole new light on the time period. And in many ways, as I've already stated, it makes it that much more impressive. If you make it simple, you make it attainable. You can hold it in your hand, but you can also manipulate it once it's there. So let's go to the sources. Let's go to the events. Let's understand the American Revolution from the very beginning. And hey, after two seasons, I think we're more than prepared to do that. I'm very excited about it. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to add them in, send them away. Because we'll include them in future broadcasts of wartime. Without further ado, let's begin. We love, especially in the Western world, to uh, assign dates to our history. That is to say that this date or that date, this place or that place is more historic than anything else. It's more historic than here. It's more historic than there. But the issue is, how is an area, quote, more historic than anywhere else? Well, it isn't. And that's one of the first problems we have with the American Revolution. When we think American Revolution... All of you are going to have one date in mind. David McCullough made a fortune off of it. That date is 1776. Now, don't get me wrong. It's important. But I want you to challenge yourself. I'm going to submit to you two more dates, I think, that are just as important as any other. They are, of course, 1783, the end of the American Revolution, and also the place that we're going to begin. And it's a date I never want you to forget. It's a date that I believe fundamentally defines the age. And that date is 1763. 1763. So your obvious question should be, what's the big deal 
about 1763. It seems to be an arbitrary date. It certainly is not as big or as recognizable as 1776. But 1763, in many ways, lays the fundamental groundwork that allows 1776 to really emerge as the important year that it is. So let's go back to that point. We'll do a bit of catch-up, and we'll see exactly why it's so important. 1763 is a major year in the history of Europe and the history of North America. In the year 1763, the single largest war in the history of the planet to that point, the Seven Years' War, comes to an end. The Seven Years' War, something we did three episodes on in Season 1 of Wartime, and I'd encourage you to look that up for some review, is the end of the Great War for Empire. In 1763, the Seven Years' War comes to a close, and it was a war that pitted the two most powerful European empires against one another, old enemies, Great Britain and France, who in one form or another had been fighting wars against each other for 600 years. Now back to the beginning, you'll see almost all of their combat going on in Europe itself. Uh, England and France competing over very tiny little pockets of unclaimed territory in Europe. You can look at the Hundred Years' War as an example. But we know that things have changed by the time you get to the 18th century, because these kingdoms have become empires. And what do empires need to be successful? They need colonies. Britain and France have colonies all over the world. They have colonies in India. They have colonies in East Asia. They have colonies in Africa. They have colonies in the Caribbean. They have colonies in Central and South America. Of course, they also have colonies in North America. So if they're fighting over small pockets of land in Europe, it seems only natural they'll next begin to fight over massive stretches of land around the world. And that's what makes the Seven Years' War so interesting. They'll be fighting on five different continents. If the British or French had been to Antarctica or Australia by that point, they'd be fighting everywhere, but they haven't. It's what Winston Churchill called the first truly world war. And I, I really believe that. Now, this war is a little bit different than any other, because I like to think of it as a winner-take-all war. In many ways, when this war came to a close, the rivalry between Britain and France, in the minds of the victorious party, the British, had finally came to an end. Britain wins, uh, their worldview reigns supreme. It's in that end, 1763, that we see in many ways the beginning of the American Revolutionary Period first emerge. And that's what we're going to spend the first few episodes of wartime on, because you can't understand the American Revolution without understanding the end of that war. So if we are putting on the hats of imperial historians and we're looking at what exactly Great Britain uh, won after that war, you're going to see that it was highly profitable. But also, you also see the seeds of some very problematic issues in the future. At the end of the Seven Years' War, if you're the average British citizen, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Your empire has literally doubled in size overnight. In 1763, the Treaty of Paris was signed between Great Britain and France and their allies that settled the matter once and for all. But the British did not win as a conquering army. This was not a surrender by France. I think that's very important we have to hit on. We always, if we even do talk about this age, talk about the British victory. But understand, there was no surrender in the end of this war. One of the very confusing things for many people when they study the Treaty of Paris 
is that the British will actually capture French territory in the war. Uh, they even capture Spanish territory, who are French allies, and they give it right back at the end. Now, in our modern understanding of war, if you surrender, you lose everything. But remember, this is a peace treaty. Uh, this is an agreement. This is a negotiation to end the conflict. This is not a total surrender by the French. So what you'll see after all is said and done uh, is that the British do pretty well for themselves. They do give the French back some of the land they've taken, but the British are sure uh, that they want to keep the major pieces of conquest for themselves in the future. When it's all said and done, the British Empire in 1763 will include some new territories. One is the island of Grenada in the Caribbean. Uh, one is the Spanish colony of Florida in North America. And the other is the hugely massive expanse of land today uh, we call Canada that they would have called New France uh, in 1763. So the British Empire, with those three crucial land acquisitions, literally doubles in size overnight. And if you're, again, the average British person, you have to feel great about this development. You vanquish your old enemies. I mean, imagine if you were a Democrat or if you were a Republican today in 2014, and you're a passionate partisan, that you could crush your enemies, defeat your enemies once and for all, you have to feel good about that, because the future, regardless of what it looks like, is now yours. And that's how the average British citizen feels after this war. Now, there's a problem that the British have, and in this problem, we see the seeds of the American Revolution really first planted, 1763. The problem is, that the British have a very clear and very concise way of managing their empire. If you listen to season one of Wartime, we spend an entire episode on how the British manage their colonies. But I like to think of it as a one-size-fits-all policy. Remember, the colony serves the empire, not the other way around. So when the British set the rules, the British set the agenda, all the colonies have to follow those rules. But the problem is... Those, uh, those rules and that agenda uh, really wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't well suited for everyone. All these colonies are very different. Grenada, Jamaica, Barbados are Caribbean colonies. They're very different from places like Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, and now Canada. These rules don't always apply equally. And the British, we can say, never really come up with a system. Uh, to manage the small territory that they actually controlled overseas well. At the end of the Seven Years' War, we know that their empire expands greatly. And they still try to use those same faulty policies. So and you're going to see they're going to pay dearly for it. We'll get to the American Revolution in a bit. But that's the origin in many ways of the conflict. You have a lot of very unhappy people for any number of reasons. And all of it, I feel, can be traced back to British policies in governing their newly acquired territory. So what were those policies? Well, we can't talk about all of them today, but we will focus on some very specific ones to see the beginning of this very troublesome age. But let's do something that we almost never do as Americans, and that is put ourselves in the position of the uh, royal executive administration, right? The king and his advisors after the Seven Years' War. Things are great for you. You went all in on a war, and you've won. It was a major risk. You could have lost everything, but you didn't. You've won the war. The question now is, can you win the peace? 
And in many ways, the American Revolution is the result of that failure. They've won the war, but they'll lose the peace. So what's your major problems? Well, number one is just plain money. Remember, the number one issue in Washington, D.C. today is money. Do we have enough of it, and how do we get more if we don't? That's what fundamentally divides us as a nation, spending, right? The use and allocation of resources. Well, that's nothing new. I mean, that is a very common political issue, and it was very common in 1763 as much as it's very common in 2014. So what is the major tension on the royal treasury? Well, here's what happens. Wars are expensive. In the United States of America, from 2001 to 2014, we fought two wars overseas. At one point in the Obama administration, if you count the action in Libya and the secretive action in, in, in Uganda, in Africa, we were fighting four wars at once. Wars cost money. Wars are very expensive. It's as true now as it ever was. Well, after the Seven Years' War, King George will sit down and he'll look at his royal tabulation. And he'll see the British Empire is in big trouble. They've won the war. Can they win the peace? The royal treasury, the royal debt, uh, was approximately 74 million pounds before the Seven Years' War. And after the war, even though they were victorious, the military costs had ballooned to 124 million pounds, roughly. Um, that's a major increase. It doesn't double, but it does really grow to an almost untenable amount. So if you are the British Empire, yes, you're victorious, yes, you've won, but you're in serious debt, and it's going to require serious action to eliminate it. If you can understand that dilemma, if you can understand that problem, which again, requires you to view this from the imperial perspective, in this case, the British perspective, you'll understand why the British Empire does what it does in the way that it does over the next several years. But never forget that. That skyrocketing debt will motivate all of the decisions the British Empire makes after the year 1763 and throughout the American Revolution. Now, in our modern world, we've somehow fooled ourselves into believing that with an enormous debt that we do have after a series of wars, very similar circumstance, there's only two ways to deal with it. One side says we must raise taxes, that's what we would call revenue increases. And the other side says, no, we must cut spending. That's what we call austerity. Do we increase revenue or do we apply measures of austerity? Do we raise taxes or cut spending? That's the debate we have today. And we believe that it's one or the other. The British, I think, in a very even-handed way, will understand that if you actually want to deal with the debt, you've got to do both. You can't do all one or all the other. You have to do both. You have to raise taxes and you have to cut spending. It's certainly not easy. And if you do, one side or the other, left or right, has to take the fall for the hardship of the people it affects. But it's just good governance. And in this case, the British Empire will be guided by at least the ambition to do just that. Now, when you think about the beginning of the American Revolution, it's a narrative that works. It's one that many people just use ad nauseum. But one word inevitably comes to mind. Taxes. Taxes. It's a word that single-handedly lost George Herbert Walker Bush, re-election in 1992. Taxes. Taxes are an issue today. They always have been an issue as long as there's been governance occurring. Revenue taxation's always existed. 
Now, taxes in many ways are what many believe to be the origin of the American Revolution. And at a face value level, at a very basic understanding, they do play a part. But this podcast is not about base understanding. It's not about uh, making it easy. We really have to get our hands dirty and dig into the real rich complexity of the age. And you'll see that the American Revolution is what I describe to my students uh, actually as a two-sided coin. On one side, yes, you have taxes. On the other, however, you have spending cuts. And that's going to be the focus of today's story. Remember, if there's anything you gathered from Season 1 of Wartime, and if you haven't listened to it, go ahead back and take a listen. It'll help you understand this more. Colonial America is a very complicated place. It's a highly stratified place, socially, economically, religiously, ethnically, racially, and culturally. It is anything but simple. It's a very unique, diverse place, much more than we often think. Well, if one issue really affects one group of people, what are the odds that that issue really affects all of these different people in the same way? Not very good. And as you work through the events and as you study history, you see, more often than not, different people are united in a common cause for very different reasons. Well, taxation, revenue increases, that's really going to affect the cities of colonial America. And the cities, if you don't know them, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and Charleston, all have one thing in common. They're all on the Atlantic coast. They're all coastal cities in one way or another. They really are affected by tax increases. And for them, that's something they can see. But what about the rest of the colonies? What about the rest of these new settlers? What about the rest of these British citizens in the New World? If you don't live in a city, where do you live? Well, you live in the countryside. And even more than that, you live on the frontier. Now, there are no tax collectors in any way effective. I mean, they're there, but they aren't very effective on the frontier. I mean, people move to the frontier because they have a natural dislike or natural distaste for authority and governance. So you're not going to collect taxes from those people very effectively. And if I was a, say, tea merchant or tobacco merchant in Charleston or Boston, and I tried to appeal to my colonial brothers on the very fringes of society, and I said, our taxes are going up, we must rebel, they would probably say they need a better reason. They probably would. That being said, they were fully engaged in the revolutionary cause. So the question we have to answer is, where does the connection occur? Because based on everything I've just told you, there's no real reason for a frontiersman to pick up a musket and fight. We're going to talk about where their ambitions come to fight today, and it's going to come from a very interesting place. After the Seven Years' War, at the very close, we have the beginning of what we call the Pax Britannica, that is, the Great British Peace in North America. The French have been expelled from the continent. English-speaking is the word of the day. There are still French populations in Canada, but they have worked out a deal in 1763 that they can remain as long as they adhere to British governance. The future of North America is a British one. That's an imperial victory of an outstanding magnitude. The people will speak one language. It will be English. Of course, I'm speaking it to you today. If you're in America, that's why. Empire at its finest. 
But the reality is, as we know, that's never the case. Uh, there is no official language in the United States of America today. We have thousands of different languages spoken in this country, and it was just as outrageous for them to think so in 1763. Now, we'll talk about taxes. We'll do a whole episode on taxes. Believe me, we will. Uh, but this episode's all about the other side of the coin I mentioned earlier. One side is revenue, taxes, and the other side is austerity, spending cuts. So who in the world is so deeply affected by the spending cuts? Who is? Well, from the British mindset, uh, they begin at this assumption. They look at the Seven Years' War. Yes, it was fought in India. Yes, it was fought in the Caribbean. Yes, it was fought uh, in East Asia. But they ask themselves in Britain, where was most of our money spent? Well, most of the money was spent in the place where most of the fighting occurred, and in the place where the British citizens who lived there had the best chance of improving their quality of life. Of course, it was North America. Most of the fighting in the Seven Years' War happened there. They were by far the wealthiest citizens in the entire empire, and they stood to gain the most from the fighting. So from London, looking outward, they said, we have to raise taxes, we have to cut spending. We should do it to the people who can afford it the most. We should do it to the people who have the most to gain, which of course were the North American colonists. Now, from their vantage point in England, right, in London looking out, that made perfect sense. But part of the reason we see the American Revolution occur is because there is a major ideological disconnect in vision. The Americans are British, and mind you, in 1763, they're very proud to be British. Uh, but their understanding of what it means to be British is fundamentally different than what they're being treated as in their opinion. King George will look at his problems. He'll look at his bank book that needs to be balanced. And his, again, thinking is uh, that the Americans cost us the most. They stand to gain the most. So they should, in effect, pay the most. So imagine if you're a veteran of the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, as it was called in North America. And imagine you've just fought for, what, five years, maybe. You fought to defend your British way of life against your age-old enemy, the French. You expect a pat on the back from the king. And yet, what do you get? You get your taxes raised, and you get your spending cut. People are incensed by this in the American colonies, because it just doesn't jive. They've sacrificed. They've killed. Some of them were killed in the fighting. All to defend the king's way of life all to defend the king's honor. And yet, in exchange for their efforts, what do they get? Higher taxes, lower spending. So this is the pervasive ideology. And again, it's why 1763 and the events of 1763 have so much to do uh, with the American Revolution in the future. Now again, we'll get to the taxes, but what was the spending? Well, to understand the spending cuts, you have to understand the administration of the British power base in North America. The commander-in-chief of British forces in North America after the Seven Years' War was a man named Geoffrey Amherst. Amherst was a general in the war. He commands the roughly 8,000 soldiers that are in North America. And he is the one that is most responsible for doing a lot of the very uncomfortable, dirty work after the war that very few politicians want to be involved with. And of course, that is raising taxes, but to a greater extent for Jeffrey Amherst is cutting spending. Now, where are you going to make these spending cuts? Well, he takes a good look at North America 
And he sees from his experience in the fighting where the British are wasting the most money in his mind, where they can afford to cut the most. And of course, it's on the frontier. Before the Seven Years' War, there was a very delicate diplomatic balance being held in North America with the French in Canada and the British along the eastern seaboard of North America. And that delicate balance involved the native peoples of the continent. Both sides, British and French, uh, were trying very hard to gain native populations to their side, knowing that diplomatically, if there was a war, they would be valuable enemies. Now, this makes the very complicated Native American culture very simple, but we'll talk in generalities at this point for the sake of expediency. The general policy between the British and French was simply to give the Native American communities uh, what they need to be successful. The Native American world, the Native American economy, was entirely based on trade. Trade. Trade of goods. They would trade North American furs that they hunted for European commodities like weapons, like gunpowder, like tools, and like liquor. Alcohol was a big part of this story. And that's the balance that occurred. The native peoples would bounce from the French to the English. And after about 50 years of this, their economy becomes entirely supported in every way possible uh, by European trading systems. Again, think about how our modern economy has changed over the last 50 years, and you'll see exactly uh, how long 50 years of economic advancement uh, can change how a people work. So what you'd see if you were in a native community in 1763 and before uh, were Native American peoples wear European clothes. Not completely, but in some ways. Some did completely dress in European ways, but they had thrown down their traditional ways of life. That is, uh, hunting with bows and arrows uh, and trapping and, and things of the like. Because when you have a European musket, regardless of how completely inefficient it is, it is a game changer for them. We all benefit in the modern world from a shared world economy. When you have bananas or coffee for your breakfast, uh, that's come from an imperial setting a world away. Someone on the other side of the world grew that and gave that to you. That's the power of empire, and the native peoples are benefiting from it as much as anyone else in 1763. Well, whenever Jeffrey Amherst takes a good look at a lot of the spending going on in North America, he sees one place that he believes the British can afford to cut more than anywhere else, and that is spending to the native peoples. The French, in Amherst's estimation, are gone. The native peoples are no longer getting supplies and getting weapons and trading with the French. So in his, eye, in his mind, he basically comes to the conclusion that if the British were only giving gifts to the native peoples uh, in their trade-based economy to counteract the French in the first place, why should they continue any more in 1763 and beyond? It seems to be a terrible waste of resources. Well, that's Amherst's decision. The great spending cut in the British world is going to come in the form of the complete cessation of not only gift-giving, uh, but economic stimulus, we can say, into the Native American world. And that would lead, as you can imagine, since their economy is entirely based on trade, to a complete and total collapse uh, of the Indian economy in North America. And this is really where our story begins. The spending cut came in the form of spending on Native peoples. 
And this will have a direct influence on British settlers on the frontier. Again, they don't give a lick about taxes in Boston or Charleston or New York or Philadelphia. Just as today, city folks and country folks don't get along. They don't view the world the same. It was the true then. But this spending cut is going to serve to do nothing but agitate the frontier of the of the North American colonies against their British uh, overseers. And there's a reason for that, which we'll talk about next. Now, as a result of those spending cuts in 1763, as I've mentioned earlier, the native world completely and totally begins to collapse. The British Empire won the war, but they lost the peace. The problems are there. They have this new land, this new territory. The system they have in place was not effective to govern the smaller, older territory. How could that same system ever uh, effectively be transferred to this new giant world? Well, the native peoples are the first ones to suffer as a result. Make no mistake, these are not bystanders in North American history. The native nations of North America really believe, some of them, that they are allies and partners of the British Empire. For far too long in history, we've minimized the impact of these people. We've viewed them as pawns on a chessboard. But it's really so much more than that. In the 1980s, when we really began looking at them as equals, we saw just how impressive the roles they played in North America were. And again, when this slight occurs, when the spending is cut, they begin to see the real horror that a negative economy can bring. Now, some native peoples were on the cutting edge of this. Some native peoples were way ahead of the spending cut. But unfortunately for them, uh, they did not have the the uh, audience, and they didn't have the evidence to really bring people to their cause. In 1761, after the French had effectively been defeated in North America, but the war was still very real around the world, a native leader uh, from an area called the Ohio country, uh, which is basically anything over the Allegheny Mountains to about central Ohio, maybe closer to Indiana today, uh, named Gaia Suta, traveled out of the Ohio country, his small native community, and he traveled to a much bigger, much more robust native community near the Great Lakes. Now, the Great Lakes, and you can learn more about this in Season 1 of Wartime, uh, were the home to many, many Indian peoples uh, that were very intense and very deep allies with the French in the Seven Years' War. In the Great Lakes, an area the French called the Pays d'Honneau, or the Upper Country, you saw four very powerful tribes uh, that had to be convinced after the defeat of the French that they would have a role in this new society. Tribes like the Ojibwas, the Potawatomis, the Hurons, the Ottawas, they were the ones that lived around the Great Lakes in the Pays d'Honneau, as the French called it. Well, Gaia Suta, as an emissary of the Ohio country, travels uh, to the Great Lakes region. And he says very accurately, we have to think about, even though the Seven Years' War is still going on around the world, and even though the French have been defeated in North America, they were all French allies, mind you, we have to think about continuing this war. He says, yes, the British have defeated our French brothers. Uh, but the aftermath is going to be very bad for us. The status quo is going to change. Gaia holds many councils around the Great Lakes at the Pays d'Honneau. And he'll call many peoples together and he'll say, why will they keep giving us goods? Why will they keep trading with us if they don't have to? 
That's a statement. And it's a very astute development. You know, one of the things I did in my last book was a biography on Chief Guy Suta. And I saw just how much of an outstanding diplomat and free thinker and just how, how well he grasped European politics from afar. And he correctly predicted that with the French removed, the British will no longer support them. And since they were uh, as French allies in the Ohio country and the Pays d'Honneau and the Illinois country at war with the British anyway, they should continue it in the aftermath. Now, Gaius Suta was uh, scoffed at in the Pays d'Honneau in the Great Lakes region. He was laughed at. He was ridiculed. He did speak to hundreds of natives uh, of those neighboring tribes. And the British knew full well what he was doing. The British superintendent of Indian affairs in the northern department a man named Sir William Johnson, very interesting guy, who actually travel, at least said an envoy, uh, to travel to the Great Lakes region and try to squash Gaiasuta's talk of rebellion and a continuation of war uh, by humiliating him. Sir William Johnson gets there and he says to these people, uh, we're going to continue giving you goods. We're going to continue trading with you. Why would we ever stop? Who amongst you is the one promoting such terrible ideas? And many of the Great Lakes chiefs uh, will point to Chief Gaiasuta and say, as a direct quote, Gaiasuta is the bad bird among us. And Gaiasuta is quickly rebuffed and he's quickly humiliated. He's not punished. And he goes back to the Ohio country in 1761, feeling like his message was not received. Well, wouldn't you know it? In 1763, what Gaiasuta correctly predicted, and I spend two chapters on this in my book, Gaia Suta and the Fall of Indian America, uh, is that the, the spending cut, the austerity measure, and the subsequent collapse of the Indian economy would occur. And sure enough, by 1763, it happens. It happens. So what changes in 1763? Well, there's a few interesting things that you see when you study humanity, whether they're white or black or Indian uh, or blonde or blue or you name it. No matter where you're from, no matter what your creed or what your race is, in tough economic times, people become deeply and devoutly religious. In good economic times, religion tends to take a back seat. But no matter what religion you're looking at, no matter what part of the world you're seeing, if there is a bad economic time, church attendance, religious adherence, goes through the roof. Because people are suffering. And all of a sudden, they need their God in their life to make them feel like they have a purpose and make them feel like things will be better. And, of course, it brings them together with their community and it finds people who can commiserate with them in many ways. That happens everywhere. It happens in the Indian world in 1763 as well. The Indian economy collapses. European trade falls apart. The French are gone. The British cut them off. And communities will fall apart. Men who had jobs, men who had uh, ways of providing for their family because their economy was entirely trade-based, entirely trade-based, uh, begin to fall apart. They begin to turn to alcohol. Uh, they begin to turn to any number of vices to deal with their issues. And, of course, we see this everywhere during tough economic times. But families are destroyed. Uh, religious adherence in Native communities will go through the roof because there is that, that need for collective comfort with your fellow community members. Well, in 1763, as fate would have it, a Delaware prophet, as they call him, named Neolin, will come on the scene. And he will provide that 
religious red meat, we can say, that the Indian community suffering as a result of the spending cuts of 1763 really bring on. Neolin is a Delaware, part of the Lenny Lenape tribe. Uh, his name literally translates to four, as in the number four. But Neolin has a vision. He says the master of life, the great Indian god, comes to him in a dream and tells him the Indian world can regroup. The Indian world can be strong again. And the way you do it is by completely and totally eliminating your adherence, so to speak, uh, your addiction to European goods. He says, no longer will we as an Indian community, regardless of if you're Seneca, if you're Cayuga, if you're Huron, if you're Shawnee, the entire Indian community, he says, needs to cast off European clothes and stop drinking European alcohol and stop hunting with European weapons. He says that many, many, many years ago, the Indian world flourished before Europeans arrived. Can't we do it again? He says, throw down the European gun, throw down the European clothing, get back to your native roots. Now, this is something, again, in politics, we do all the time. We reference the past like, A, we were there, and B, like we have any clue what they were talking about. I hear people today justify modern political positions based on what somebody 250 years ago wrote in a document that they've never studied in an age they've never understood. It happens all the time. Well, Neil Lynn was guilty of that, too. He was talking about a fantastical Indian world and that, in his opinion, existed uh, a generation or three or four earlier. Uh, that really never was. I mean, people always do that, and he's guilty of it, too. But his religious message took off. Neolin uh, really prompted major change all across North America's Indian communities in the West, in the Ohio country, in the Pays d'Ono, the Great Lakes, in the Illinois country. And many, many peoples, especially warriors without work, without income, again, the casualties of British spending cuts, adhered to it. He said, cast them aside. There was this uh, really horrifying, noxious black drink, uh, literally called the black drink, that began to cycle throughout Indian communities this time, uh, that would induce vomiting. It was a mixture of herbs, all natural, of course, uh, that would induce vomiting to rid yourself of the evils of European alcohol. Not even stopping to drink it was enough, but you had to completely expel it from your body. There was one town uh, where it was used so prevalently, prevalently, the town was called Vomit Town. Literally, the town was called Vomit Town. I mean, this really takes off. But Neolin is that religious voice in 1763 that gives a very desperate and very endangered community, a crumbling community, the native world as a result of British policy decisions, spending cuts based on paying off the debt of the Seven Years' War that will lead to one of the great catastrophes of all of North America for European settlers that's going to come next. Now, here's what's very important to understand about Neolin. And we'll explore the other side of this more in the next episode of Wartime. Neolin was not a violent man. He was a religious preacher. He never preached attacking uh, European settlements. He never preached eliminating uh, the white man from North America. He preached that Indians could be separate and sovereign and free of European necessity. They could be independent on their own. He never said we must eliminate the white settlers altogether. But his message, religiously, is one that takes off. 
And it's really only a matter of time at that point until someone takes his religious message and transfers it into a violent political message. And when that occurs, and it will in the year 1763, nothing will be the same in North America for any settlers, whether Indian or white in the future. One man will do that, originating in the Great Lakes, in the Pays d'Anneau. He's in Ottawa, and his name is Pontiac. On the next episode, we'll talk about Pontiac's rebellion and the Indian insurgency of 1763. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.